0: is Ecclesiastes five thirteen through twenty. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes so they depart. They take nothing from their tool that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart, and what do they gain since they tool for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toolsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their tool. This is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. The word of the Lord.
1: That makes me feel like home, hearing those things knocked over. I'm Corby Shields. I'm uh, the associate pastor at Rock Creek Fellowship a.k.a. the new Hutch up at Rock Creek. That's what I was known as for a lot of years because when Rock Creek sent you guys out to plant this church, I came in. Um, and I've been here a number of times, and I always love it. And I'm, uh, I'm here under sad circumstances because Hutch is sick. So he called me up on Thursday. He actually just texted me because he didn't want to talk, I'm sure, he, uh, and asked me to jump on down here, which I was really happy to do. And uh, and Rock Creek, I reached out to our elders, and said, is it okay uh, if I go down and preach last minute? And they said, absolutely, uh, because Rock Creek loves Grace Trenton, loves what you guys are doing here, uh, and loves to support in any way we can. So I love getting to kind of participate in the the continued union of our our sister churches, Rock Creek and Grace Trenton. Um, As we jump in uh, to this passage, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be together, uh, gathered here, not just with each other, but in your presence, and we want to say out loud as we start that uh, nothing good will come about this morning unless you operate on us, so we ask that you would open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word. Don't leave us as you found us this morning changes even as we go from here. Amen. So uh, the passage today is from Ecclesiastes and if you've got uh, your Bible, there's a few Bibles that look like this right in front of you uh, and it's on page 595. So right in the middle of your Bible pretty much. Um, Ecclesiastes is a book, just briefly, uh, a book of wisdom compiled by Solomon uh, the third king of Israel. Uh, and, uh, and he's said to be one of the wisest people to have ever lived. And what Solomon did was kind of take, uh, take and create different proverbs, different wisdom, and not just uh, take from the neighboring cultures, but he would, he listened to what the neighboring cultures thought was wise and then say, okay, what does it mean to pair that with this universal God who has revealed himself to us, called himself Yahweh, and bound himself to us. So what then does wise living look like? If all the other nations say wise living looks like X, Y, and Z, okay, we can learn from something there, but let's take it and then pair it with the presence and the reality of this God who has bound himself to us as his people. And so as we dive in, that's going to be really critical to to. To maintain, because uh, Ecclesiastes is frankly depressing. I mean, if you've ever read through it, uh, it was the book that I said as a young pastor, I really hope to never have to preach from this book, because it is sad and not fun at all. I mostly like fun in life, and so this is not my jam. Um, The theme of the book is this word you might have heard, one of the famous repetitions is vanity, vanity, all is vanity, or meaningless, meaningless, or empty, empty. This word is repeated all through the book, and it comes to mean something like smoke or mist, something that disappears quickly, something that you can't hold and own and maintain, and so we come to a part in Ecclesiastes where the teacher um, wants to talk to us about riches, about wealth, um, What does it mean, namely, that all of us will die one day and our wealth in that moment is like mist that we can't take with us? What does it mean to live today in light of the day that all things come to nothing when we die? How do we live wisely? And so we're looking at a, a, I want to focus on this passage about the Father Um, I'm going to read that in a slightly different translation just because this translation uh, that I'm reading from makes it just a bit more pointed. So um, you can follow along or not as as you will, but verse 13 and 14 say this. Um, The NIV is a very fine translation. Uh, I just want to read it slightly differently. It says this, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand, or he has nothing to hand down. There's a, Has anybody ever heard of a man named Paul Getty? He's arguably the richest man to have ever lived. That's a pretty big statement. Richer than all the pharaohs, richer than, uh, than you know, the Vanderbilts or whoever, the, the steel barons. Paul Getty was an oil uh, entrepreneur. And uh, and so he's reported to have the greatest mass of wealth that anyone in the history of the earth has ever amassed. And he says this about wealth. When a man becomes wealthy, he has to deal with the problems of freedom, all the choices he could possibly want. An abyss opens up. Well, he says, I've watched that abyss. I've watched it ruin men, marriages, but most of all, it ruins the children. Why is it that wealth would ruin us? Why would he say something like that? The richest man that's ever lived. Wouldn't you expect something a little more happy from the guy who's got all the most money? As has been said before, if, if wealth brought happiness, then Hollywood would be the happiest place on earth. But it's not, is it? The ironic thing is that this man, Paul Getty, was a man who made the statement, wealth can ruin you. That abyss opens up and it can absolutely ruin you. And this statement was made by a man who was ruined by wealth. The famous story about him is that his grandson, his favorite grandson, was kidnapped and held for ransom and he refused to pay the ransom. And it was baffling to the whole world that he would not just ransom his grandson out of captivity. His grandson was in there for, I can't remember the exact figure, a number of months under captivity. When, uh, when pressed about it, uh, one of those closest to him pressed him. and said, what is it going to take? He said, I know the price of oil this morning, and, and because of the price of oil today, you've just made another fortune. Certainly you can afford to ransom your grandson out of captivity. He says, well, what if it changes again? I'd be, and I gave all that money away and then the price shifts later this afternoon. I'll be totally exposed. And the man comes back and says to Paul Getty, what would it take for you to finally feel secure? You have the greatest wealth that anyone could ever imagine. Well, what's it gonna take for you to finally feel secure? And he just looked at him and said, more. It's never enough. The abyss opens up. The abyss opens up. Here's the great thing about our, our, our scripture and our God. He doesn't just uh, point out the dangers of wealthy people and condemn wealthy people. He points out the dangers primarily of loving wealth, of a wrong relationship to wealth. The other day, not too long ago, we were, it was a Saturday and the whole, my whole family was in the kitchen. We were all making lunch and, um, and it just happened that, uh, that my daughter was putting together a sandwich for me she said, dad, do you want mayo on that sandwich? I said, oh, well, no, 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 no. That's all right, I'll do it, I'll do it. And Rachel, my wife, says, Reese, you gotta watch out for dad and these little enjoyments he's got. They've got to be just so. They've got to be just perfect because those little enjoyments, you know, they can give me life in that moment, right? Like nobody believes that a, that a BLT is gonna solve all the problems of the world. But just for a moment, it can deliver me out of them. And I can have like ultimate bliss in those few bites of sandwich, just the middle ones, the crust, you got to suffer through the, but the middle where you get the right balance of all the ingredients can be bliss. And the Bible would say, look, there's danger there. That's hoarding something to your own demise, to your own gain. That's danger if you put that much hope in a sandwich. So we're being warned not only about having lots of wealth, but the dangers of entrusting ourselves to wealth, or what we can gain, or what we can hold, or what we can possess. In our passage, the father is a double loser. I read that that portion to you. I want to focus in on that. Um, Our writer tells us that the riches he gained, the riches he gained, were kept to his own hurt. So he ruined his life by keeping these riches and hurting himself. But then he's a double loser because those riches were lost in a bad venture. He made a foolish investment trying to gain more riches. He wanted more to make himself more secure, more happy, more stably happy. And he lost them. And he's got nothing to hand down to his son. Riches made a double fool. A double loser of this father. He lost his life the first time in the gaining of wealth, and the second time in losing it. He fell prey to the to the first major temptation of wealth of anything that we own. When we say I gained it, I earned it. Now I get to use it how I want. And we're told that that is to his own hurt. The abyss opened up before him. All the choices and ruined him. He has to keep his options open. I earned it. I made the money. Those are the statements that happened right before something bad. So the father experiences the emptiness of overfilling. Can you relate to that at all? The emptiness of overfilling. I'll tell you the place that I see it most clearly is Krispy Kreme. Man, I'm not on that side of town much, right? There's only the one. I don't even know what side of that town that's called. What's that called, where the Krispy Kreme is in Chattanooga? Brainerd, somewhere far away from me. So I'm never over there. And when I am, you've got to stop. Like, it's right there. I'm just never here. And the Krispy Kremes, and the hot now light is on. i got to stop there. i got to pull in. So I swing into Krispy Kreme on my way to something else. I'm probably already running late. I swing into Krispy Kreme... And it's really just like, you know, it's it's one of those little pleasures, like a BLT that I've got to have just, I mean, it's just a dozen, right? Just a dozen. And I'm pounding these things on the way to wherever I'm going. Oh, I'm going to bring some home to the kids. How many kids do I have? Dang it. I'm going to (laughs) split them in half for the kids. They're going to have a half a donut. I'll be the hero. It'll be great. I'm driving along and everybody here knows this feeling, right? Oh my gosh, get those away from me. I'll never eat another Krispy Kreme again, I promise. They're, oh God, ooh, and you just, you couldn't think of anything but having your fill of Krispy Kremes. And then like three minutes later, you hate yourself and everything that Krispy Kreme represents. That is the destruction of overfilling. What makes us think life doesn't work that way if Krispy Kremes do? Incidentally, crystals work the same way. If you don't even need to try it, I'm here to tell you. You don't need to push yourself. All of life works that way. And that's what our father has done. He's hoarded his wealth to his own hurt. He's hoarded it. He's kept it. He's wanted the choices of the abyss and he's fallen into the abyss and it's been to his own damage. We're being warned. We're being warned that it's not going to work. That kind of belief leads a man or a woman to spend all their wealth on the next Krispy Kreme or the next Corvette or the next whatever it is that can fill that, that abyss. So again, Scripture doesn't condemn the wealthy. Scripture condemns anybody who has that wrong relationship to wealth and puts our hope and wealth That puts our hope in what we can get, what we can have, what can fill us. So not only does that leave you, you know, uh, this, this father hands to his children uh, nothing. He ruins his life once in the keeping of wealth for himself, and he ruins it again in the, in the squandering of it and a bad investment trying to get more. And that hands to our children not just just empty hands, but an inheritance of heartburn, right? What am I teaching my kids? What am I teaching those after me when I handle wealth this way? And that's where this passage actually cuts both ways. You know, Jesus came to bear our sins, but also our sadnesses. And it's really appropriate for us to look not just for where am I sinning as I look at a passage like this, But where have I been sinned against? What are the sadnesses that Jesus wants to deliver me and all the world from? And when we look at a passage about a father who hoarded his wealth to his own hurt and then squandered it and had nothing to hand to his children, it's really appropriate for us to look and ask ourselves, what have I been handed? What inheritance have I received from my forefathers, from my foremothers? My forefathers were suckers to wealth. I love my father, and I'm not saying anything bad against him. Um, But he received from his parents an an awful relationship to money. And he's redeemed a lot of that, and he's handed to me a complicated relationship to money. Just like everybody here, right? Right? None of us has a perfect father. None of us has a perfect mother. And there's something about the inheritance that we've received from them that you and I need to deal with and need to say, that, uh, that relationship to money, I was taught that, and Jesus wants to deliver me from that. He wants to offer a better way. You know, it's the old story of rags to riches to rags again. Everybody's got a story like that in their community. So-and-so who was, you know, kind of living... Living rough, not never able to keep a job. Then, then they, uh, then somebody in their family uh, starts a business that takes off, and they're and they're really wealthy. And then they try and hand that off to their kids, and then the kids all squander it, and it becomes it's a rags to riches to rags again story. It's all over Hollywood. Uh, it's all over uh, professional sports. You know, because you can change the amount of wealth you have, but until you're changed in your relationship to that wealth, nothing really changes. It's all going to get squandered. It's all going to go away. The Father in our passage may claim, I earned it. And so he gets to use it how I want. But our teacher in this passage reminds us, no, no, no. God has given it. And that's where Solomon is going to take the wisdom of this world and pair it to, to this covenant making, relational God that he called Yahweh. Later in our passage, you'll see this. This is, uh, I love this part. Um, he goes on after the, the part about the, uh, the squandering the wealth. He says at the, in 18, this is what I observe to be good. And I want you to kind of uh, just raise your hand anytime you hear God gives something in this passage. This is what I observe to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth, and possessions, and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil. This is the gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. This is the difference. You are not g- coming from nothing and going to nothing. And so all of your, your wealth is like uh, Chuck E. Cheese tokens that you got to spend before you leave. That's not the life we live. Because we have a God who has given. He gives wealth. He gives the ability to enjoy it. He gives us our work to do. And he gives us the ability to rest when we've worked. This is a whole different equation. And we serve a father. We have a father in heaven who didn't squander and hoard his wealth. You see, our father in heaven has wealth, right? He has wealth that actually makes him happy unlike ours, that will, that will just drag us down into the abyss. He has wealth that actually makes him endlessly joyful. We know that his fellowship with the Son from all eternity past is absolutely perfect and wholly fulfilling in every aspect. And our Father took his one and only beloved Son, and he didn't hoard him but he gave them to win a treasure. He gave them to win you. To Win you as his treasure. You see, on the cross, on the cross, Jesus reverses the double curse of wealth. We are doubly cursed with wealth. We squander our life, and then we make a bad investment and hand nothing to our, our kids. We ruin our life twice with wealth. But Jesus gives a double blessing. He claims the treasure for his father. He claims the whole earth and says, I've reclaimed this. I've defeated the enemy. I've won back our treasure. And in the same moment, he liberates you. He liberates you. He forgives us for our hoping and wealth and BLTs and Krispy Kremes and Corvettes. He liberates us. And he gives us an inheritance that won't spoil or fade. He gives us a sure treasure that we don't have to live for the treasure of this world anymore. Paul says in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 8, Paul says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he had all the riches, all the pleasure, all the joy of fellowship with his Father in heaven. Everything. He was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might have real riches. Might become truly rich. This is fascinating. So Paul, in this passage, is going to tell us what to do after you know that. You know, everybody in Christendom has the first answer. What do you do once you, be, once you come into the family? Once you understand this amazing uh, generosity that's been given to you in Christ Jesus, what's your first response? You know, uh, Campus Crusade would say, you got to go tell somebody about it right now. Go, go. That's a great response. InterVarsity said, you got to get into a Bible study and you got to get in deep. RUF, probably something similar. Everybody's got a quick answer for what you're supposed to do right away. Here's Paul's answer. Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do to give may be matched by your completion of this gift according to your means. Paul is talking to this church about a gift um, that he's collecting for poor believers in Jerusalem. And his first, his, his first application of Jesus giving you wealth is to say, give your stuff away. That's the first application. Don't hoard it to your own hurt. Don't try and fill the abyss that's open before you. With all the choices you can make, give generously. That's his first application when we come to know this generous God who's given to us in Christ Jesus. You have an inheritance that is firm and established. It's not going anywhere. You will be cared for. You will be secure. You will be unendingly happy in Christ. You can give away all this this wealth. The options that wealth gives you, even if it's just a little. If it's a welfare check or your last paycheck from, from, uh, from winning the Super Bowl, none of that, neither, neither amount is going to make you happy. It's not going to fulfill you. Paul says the first response is generosity. What if you and I, what if our people, what if we as believers were known everywhere as the generous people? Where we are culturally right now, nobody's going to respond to some reason to argument about Jesus. It's just not going to happen. I have a friend who used to work for a ministry and they would go door to door and knock on doors and that was their job. They're going to to tell people, uh, uh, where are you going to go when you die? Do you know? No. Okay, let's talk about Jesus and what he offers. And They're talking about give them the whole reason to argument, a great and compelling reason. And he said every time, almost without fail, people would genuinely say, thanks a lot. That's great for you. I'm glad you have that. Close the door. But you know what people won't ignore? A life like nobody else's. People can't ignore generosity, true, deep generosity. I love the stories I hear coming out of this community, out of, out of Grace Trenton, and the generosity that you all are showing even to renovate this building. That's a generous act for the community to get to use this and to get to beautify a space in the community. And there are all kind of other stories like that coming out of here and I want to, I want to just continue to urge you don't be the father who hoards the wealth to his own hurt. Jesus gave away his great wealth and took on your poverty so that you may become rich. Let's give it away. Let's see what God will do if we start getting crazy, crazy generous, daringly generous. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're thankful to encounter you this morning. We know that you don't waste anything and you didn't waste this time with us. We ask that you would um, send us from here.